Good morning. Imagine, if you will, you're driving down the streets of DC, not to get anyone's blood pressure up. I know this has happened to all of us. You're driving down, let's say, 16th Street. In the left-hand lane, there's a car parked in the right-hand side, and the car next to you lurches over, cuts you off. No courteous thank you wave. And you think, you, you, discourteous driver, you. <laughs> and yet, can any of us in this room really say, unless you don't drive, that we haven't been one of those people that have been less than courteous and possibly downright rude in our driving maneuvers? But of course, when we do it, it's because we're running late. It's because we've been in that darn lane for 15 minutes, and if we don't get over now, it's never going to happen. So we act this way because of circumstances. But those other people, they're just bad drivers, or even worse, jerks. We expect people to follow the rules of the road, the rules of etiquette, respect the right of way. And yet, when they don't, we get so angry, what do we do? We match their aggression for our aggression, we're shaking our fists, or, or honk our horn as if somehow that improves people's driving skills. True story. I was cut off by someone on the beltway, and I said, that person has a world is my religion bumper sticker. <laughs> oh, God, I hope they're okay. I, obviously, they didn't want to get into a car accident. That's not a jerk driving that car. It, it, in all honesty, it really calmed me down. And I had this vision of, you know, pulling up next to the person and being... <laughs> I, for the record, I don't know who it was. <laughs> As I was writing this platform, a friend posted a quote on Facebook. It said, quote, we judge ourselves by our intentions, but others by their actions. We understand why we do these things, and yet we expect other people to be these perfectly rational drivers, and yet when they're not, we're less than rational. This example of unrealistic expectations we have in others is from a book that inspired my platform called Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard by Dan and Chip Heath, who are brothers. It's one of many books I've read in the last few years about what motivates us as people, how we tick, how we think, how we can best relate to each other. You may have read some other books along this vein. I've loved Malcolm Gladwell's books like Blink and Outliers, Freakonomics, Predictable Irrationality. I find this area so fascinating, I make a living out of it. My title is the rather obscure Change Management, actually, I have to look down to look at my title. Organizational Change Management Consultant. That's my title. <laughs> Which basically means I come into organizations that are making a large change, and I help people from freaking out. And yet, I find myself really frustrated by my clients. So I work with a change team, and we're trying to get the whole organization to change. And yet, I need these people on my team to change because they won't listen to me. Don't they know that I've done this before? I know what I'm doing. So from both a personal interest and my professional sanity, I keep coming back to this question, why do we do the crazy things we do? I found myself sitting in a lot of platforms recently thinking, this all gets back to what makes us tick. When we talk about ethical culture, we say that we want to elicit the best from others, and in doing so, bring out the best in ourselves. But you know what? That's great, but other people are really annoying and difficult. Truth be told, I can be annoying and difficult. Right, hon? Yeah, don't, don't answer that. 
but I have my reasons. And when other people are irrational and difficult, we have a rather emotional and unkind and uncompassionate thoughts like we do with those drivers. So I'm here today to tell you there is a way we can more easily tap into that better part of every person, including ourselves. And if we know how to do that, we can even improve larger progressive causes, which too often fall into the trap of driving people away instead of drawing them in. Before I get into the nitty-gritty, I just want to do a quick show of hands. How many people have actually read Switch? Yes, fresh blood. Sorry, you'll, you'll have heard some of this. All right, so let me go over the basic premise. The basic premise is whenever we interact with people, especially when we want to motivate them or ask them to do something, we need to accept that we have two very different conflicting sides to us. And the metaphor the authors use is that of a rider and an elephant. The rider is rational, linear, fact-based, our long-term thinker. The rider inside all of us is important because it gives us our direction. The elephant, our other half, upon which the rider sits, is our emotions. It's our passions. It's our driving purpose to, of why we do the things we do and what matters to us most. The elephant is why we go march on the streets for a cause. But the elephant loves instant gratification and knows how to ignore the rider and his or her rational arguments. And when you look at this picture, you can kind of see there's a bit of a power dynamic going on when push comes to shove. The authors of the Switch book took this metaphor from a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt in a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. And it's actually similar to other metaphors I found the, dating back to Plato uh, on our irrational and emotional sides. Plato talked about a rider on a chariot pulled by two different horses, one the emotional, one the irrational. Never met a rational horse, but that's his metaphor. Freud compared the ego to a rider and the id to a horse. And philosophers and intellectuals in all of these times have dreamed of a state where we could be these perfectly rational beings. Thomas Jefferson had hoped, quote, the American experiment would prove that men can be governed by reason and reason alone, if only. Turns out, they're all wrong. In a book called How We Decide by Jonah Lair, he shows experiments, well not experiments, but uh, cases where people have had tragic brain injuries and have had their emotional centers wiped out, and it turns out that their riders don't go anywhere except in circles. A simple question like, do you want a pen with blue ink or black ink, will send these poor people into an analysis paralysis spiral that leaves them stuck in a never-ending decision of what might be the most rational choice. We need both our rational and our, sorry, we need both our emotional and our rational sides, but they conflict, and that's why we do the crazy things that we do. For example, my rider sets the alarm clock for 6 a.m. and is going to wake up every morning and exercise. At 6 a.m., my elephant hits the snooze button and proceeds to do that four more times until I get up at 6.45. Sometimes my rider tries to trick my elephant by setting the alarm clock fast, as if the parts of my brain don't talk to each other. <laughs> the rider puts us on a diet. The elephant says, me want cookie. Rider, elephant. <laughs> and inside all of us is Mr. Spock and Cookie Monster trying to battle it out. That's an image. 
But you're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. You're all nuts too. But going back to that driving example, when we do these things, it's because we have a good reason. And yet we keep expecting other people to be these perfectly rational beings that none of us can ever be. So we're going to now accept that we are all these dual-natured, conflicted, flawed beings. Now what do we do? That's where the switch framework comes in. I'm going to go over their recommendations at a very high level and try to use where I can examples from Wes and progressive causes. The book goes into far better detail and gives better examples. And in fact, I, I go into a lot more detail with some of these, and I want to say that I saw them speak, and I've even like, stolen some of their slides. They, they're great, if you can ever get a chance to see them. So the steps. When we want to motivate people, we need to think about three things. We've got to direct the rider. We've got to motivate the elephant. And then lastly, this all works better when we shape the path they are on and make the journey easier. So each of these three areas have three recommendations. So first, how do we direct the rider? Well, first, we point to the destination. Seems pretty simple, except that it's not. I'm sure all of us have worked at organizations where we don't really quite know the direction our boss, our department, or maybe even the whole company's going. And that can really affect morale. So the first thing you want to do when you ask people to come along with you on a journey is tell them where you're going. <laughs> Second thing we need to do, script the critical moves. People need guidance. Remember, the rider gets confused when there are multiple paths. This is that analysis paralysis spiral. And the switch authors say what is often perceived as resistance is actually sometimes the lack of clarity. Giving people more precise suggestions on how to get to their destination helps. You can tell people, go improve the environment. You, go, improve it. Go, off you go. What do you do with that? It doesn't really give you a lot to go on. Instead, you can do something like, here are 40 things you could do in 40 days for the environment, and in fact, that checklist is out in the hallway. That's a great example of how you script the critical moves. And finally, for directing the rider, they tell us, follow the bright spots. And I love this one. This is my favorite one. There are times where we know where we want to go, but there are so many paths, or we can't even see where the path begins because things are such a mess, that we're overwhelmed by all that's wrong. And we're going to take Susie as an example. This is Susie. Actually, this was Susie. She was a good student, but for quite some time now, her grades have been slipping. And in fact, last week, she brought home this report card. Now. What stands out to you on this report card? Can everyone see it? Pretty much. There's some, yeah, D, I'm hearing D. So if you're a parent, what do you think? What's the thing you really see on this report card? That's right. You see that bad boy right there, don't you? So even worse, you might see this. Susie is a failure. So let's look at this report card again, though. I mean, this, isn't, this is a child that's struggling in school. Well, except in one area. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not this child. If your child brings home this report card, yes. F is where you're going to focus, no doubt about it. But when your child brings home this report card, you've got to point to the destination. There's something going right. How often do we ask people, how often do we ask children, what's wrong? What's going wrong? How often do we ask, what's going right? And in this case, that's the question you want to ask. Because in something, science is going right that could possibly point us to a direction that gets improvements in these other classes. All right. And just another thing, I want to say that I love this one because I think it's a wonderful mindset overall. 
How often do we ask other, oh, I went through that one, sorry. <laughs> but this fits very well into the ideals of ethical culture. It's a chance to make people see their success in their lives. And I have to imagine that we feel better asking the question in the positive than instead of the negative. So that's directing the rider. Now we need to motivate the elephant. So what do we want to do with motivating the elephant? First, find the feeling. Sounds like a bad 70s love ballad, doesn't it? Find the feeling. Anyone, any good fundraiser knows that when you send out a letter stating horrible, horrible facts and figures that appeal to the writer about millions of starving of children, you will not get anywhere near the response you get when you send out the story of one child with a photo it pulled, that pulls at your heartstrings. For me, it's those darn Humane Society commercials. I see those dogs and I'm like ready to run out the door and adopt one. People need to make an emotional connection to be truly motivated about something. So what else can we do? For the elephant, we can shrink the change. For the rider gets overwhelmed when there's many paths. The elephant gets overwhelmed when there's only one path, but it's over a mountain. Sometimes we need to dig a, a tunnel in that mountain. We need to, we need to uh, break the change up into smaller goals. We need to take baby steps. I know a lot of people who run marathons, and they say they don't run 26 miles, they run one mile at a time. You want to lose weight? They say don't try to lose 50 pounds, start with five. Break things up into smaller goals. Shrink the change. And the third thing we need to do with the elephant is cultivate an identity. I brought up earlier that I think this area, uh, this, less, this framework, has a lot of lessons that can be applied to larger progressive causes. And I think this is one of two key areas that they have a lot to learn from. There's a linguist named George Lakoff who ironically wrote a book called Don't Think of an Elephant. Different elephant, different metaphor. <laughs> I want you to think of an elephant, but <laughs> Entity talks about voters and how many of us see that voters seem to vote against what we perceive as their own self-interest. The poor vote for people who flat out tell them, I'm going to cut your benefits. The rich vote for people that tell him, I'm going to raise your taxes. He writes the following about the California governor's race. Quote, in focus groups, they asked union members, which position is better for you, this Davis position or this Schwarzenegger position? And most would say Davis. Davis, Davis, Davis. Then they would ask, who are you voting for? Schwarzenegger. We know how that one turned out. <laughs> Lakoff goes on to say, quote, people do not necessarily vote their self-interest. They vote their identity. When supporters of anti-global warming efforts are out there, often what do they do? Facts, figures. They go for the rider. They ignore the elephant and don't realize that people tune out the facts when it does not agree with their identity. I was listening to NPR just last week in bed. It was like a perfect thing as I was thinking about this platform. And they were talking about green jobs in Louisiana. And the guy who's the proponent said, don't call them green jobs, just call them jobs. Because if you call them green, they're just going to say it's that tree hugger stuff. It's about identity. And it's always going to trump facts and figures. So we've directed the rider. We've motivated the elephant. What's the third thing we need to do? We need to shape the path the rider and the elephant are on. So what's the first thing we can do? First thing we can do is tweak the environment. We can change the course of the path. The driver example that the authors of Switch give um, actually is related to this. It's in this chapter. 
And they talk about how we think of people as bad drivers. And I know this is really hard to relate to in this area, but sometimes there's just bad roads. <laughs> the fact that you don't have signs that you can see and you're forced to get over at the last minute, this is bad design. And if you can change the environment, if you can improve the design, you can improve people's behavior. I think Wes does a great job of this too. And I think we've tweaked our environment. We don't want people to use disposable cups, so we don't have them. We got regular mugs, even better. We sell mugs. You can go buy one and give the dishwashers a break. So what else can you do? You can build habits. You want people to stay on the path. And you, when you create a routine, you help do this. Studies show that if you can go to the gym for a certain amount of time, it comes a habit. The odds of you sticking to a routine like uh, exercise fitness is going to be much more likely. And the third thing you can do is rally the herd. People want to know there's other people on the path with them. Behavior is contagious, both positive and negative. People who are around overeaters tend to overeat more. Study just shows that college freshmen with a heavy drinking roommate will drink more than other college students. But positive behavior is contagious as well. And I think here at West, that's what we do. We spread positive behavior. It's a place where we come to celebrate our common values, where we can strengthen our identity and find outlets to put those values into action, but we also make them to the, visible to the larger community so people can see that there's people like them out there. It's okay. It's okay to do the things that we do and believe the things that we believe. So that's it. We direct the rider. We motivate the elephant. Shape the path. That's the formula. All the world's problems are solved. We will never have a conflict again. I'm kidding, of course, if it were only that simple. As much as I love this framework, we need to keep in mind that all of these elements need to be kept in balance. If you understand how to use this framework, you certainly know how to abuse this framework. And I think the obvious one is the abuse of the elephant and those emotional appeals, the kind that drive initiatives like Proposition 8, Arizona's immigration law, and what's the latest this week? You got it. These emotional appeals work, and we find them exploitative and deeply disturbing. But I also need to be critical of people who go to the other extreme and ignore the elephant and appeal only to the rider. And this gets back to the second area where I think progressive causes have been their own worst enemy. I said identity was the first area where they get tripped up. With global warming, evolutionism versus creationism, and many other debates where people see themselves on the side of science, not only do they have a problem with ignoring the elephant, they don't even make the path look appealing. In Amanda's platform a few weeks ago, she got to this when she talked about science and truth. And she used a word that jumped out at me at what I was trying to get to, that the tone often used in these debates is one of condescension. condescension. The smug arrogance that I have the facts on my side, I am right, you are wrong, why are we even debating this? I think part of this stems from, goes back to the very beginning, that we are having trouble accepting that everyone else isn't, aren't these perfectly rational beings that are just going to accept the facts in front of them. But we know now that doesn't work. This approach does not bring out the best in others, and when we resort to it, it's not the best part of, our, of us and ourselves either. When I saw the Switch author Dan Heath speak, he made the point that there are times when we ask people to change and we have a choice. We can be right or we can be effective. I'd rather be effective and then later point out that I was right. <laughs> but you have to keep all of these elements in the framework in balance and ask yourself, how am I going to be the most effective interacting with this person? 
to bring out the best in them and bring out the best in me in the process. For all the issues that frustrate us, how do we connect to people we see on the other side of a divide? Can we ask them just to come down this far down the path with us? Can we ask them what's going right instead of what's going wrong? Can we lift the debate to a higher level and make positive behavior contagious? Can we forge a common identity that we can both relate to despite our differences? Aren't we all for strengthening this country, for investing in our nation, our children, and the future? And maybe if we can accomplish that, we can dream of a future world where we are all better drivers. Thank you. <laughs>